I always say like engineers have to solve problems, but they have to actually be able to make it exist in the real world. But artists are also just solving problems and they get to make up their own problem to solve. Print friends, and welcome to a special broadcasting of Pine Copper Lime, the internet's number one printmaking podcast, in collaboration with Print Austin and Studio Noise. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. I release weekly podcasts with people in the print world who are doing something a bit beyond the expected. So please subscribe on your podcast listening app of choice. You can also find Pine Copper Lime on Instagram and Facebook, and you can also sign up for our monthly newsletter with print news from around the world, all at pinecopperlime.com. Printmaking forever, shun the non-believers. This episode of Pine Copper Lime is brought to you by Print Austin, an artist-led nonprofit working with local venues and artists to showcase traditional and contemporary approaches in printmaking. Their annual festival will take place from January 15th through February 15th, 2021. It offers both safe, in-person printmaking-focused experiences and virtual programming. You can find out more at printaustin.org. Also, Print Austin's highly anticipated print fair, Print Expo, is being reimagined as a virtual experience this year that includes a one-day conference on February 6th, along with an online exhibition where artists have the ability to showcase and sell their latest prints. Visit printexpo.org to learn more. There's a link in the show notes. This episode of Pine Copper Lime is also brought to you by Speedball Art Products, who've been offering a diverse range of high-quality products to your practice since 1997. We here at PCL have been very grateful to partner with them to help keep bringing you weekly printmaking content from around the world. But they don't stop with their support there. No, no, no. Among all the projects and programs and printy goodness they enable, they're also helping bring you this year's Print Austin Contemporary Print 5x5 exhibition. So head on over to speedballart.com to check out their line of products and find out how Speedball can support your printmaking practice. My guest this week is Laura Post, one of the finalists of Print Austin's exhibition, The Contemporary Print 5x5, juried by our friend and guest of episode 43, Delita Martin. Laura is a printmaker and sculptor currently based in Texas. We'll talk about how she came to printmaking through learning Mokahonga techniques, the idea that, indeed, everything truly is printmaking, silicone casting mishaps, and how sticking with a subject and continually questioning your practice can lead you to communicating the ideas that you really wanted to share. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to sit for a portrait with Laura Post. Hi, Laura. How's it going? It's great. Good, good. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I was introduced to you and your work through the good people at Print Austin, uh, which we'll get to, you know, the, the how and the why of that a little later on. But I was really happy that they were able to do so because you're making really beautiful, quite interesting work around portraiture. And you've got all kinds of things I'm excited to chat more about. But before we dive into all of that... Would you mind giving a little introduction to people listening and just let them know who you are, where you are, and what you do? 
Sure. So my name is Laura Post. I am currently in Fort Worth, Texas. I'm originally from the Philadelphia area, and I've lived a lot of places between there and here. And my artwork is, I, I call it prints. I call everything that I do a print because I feel like everything is a print. And that work has now become paper sculptures with handmade paper of my own creation, um, life cast, CNC routed molds, woodcuts, particularly Chinese and Japanese style woodcuts, engravings, and just a lot of other things mixed in there in between. And so you said you grew up in the Philadelphia area. What role did art play in that part of your life? I mean, I grew up in the suburbs, so I want to make it really clear that I grew up in the <laughs> suburbs. But, um, but I will say one of the first times I was allowed to drive, that I, my parents let me drive by myself, I took a friend and I to the Philadelphia Museum of Art, which I had been to, you know, a lot growing up. But um, it was like that rite of passage, like, I'm going to take my friend and we're going to go on a Friday night into the city and we're going to go to the museum. And so... I think art was always a part of my life. I grew up, my parents are not artists. Mm. My father is an engineer and my mom is a toxicologist and they both work with, <laughs> my dad does water treatment. So he um, he's retired, but he does water, did water treatment for industrial power plants. And my mom works on chemical standards for, for drinking water. So yeah. making sure that our drinking water is safe. We'll put it that, that's the shortest way. So they don't always... I always say that they don't always fully understand what I'm doing, but they're extremely supportive and they've always helped me develop that artistic end, mm -hmm. including, you know, I took art lessons when I was a kid and they took me to museums, even though it wasn't necessarily their interest. And mm -hmm. so anyway, yeah, it's always been, it's always been a part of a big part of my upbringing and my life. So how did you find yourself kind of being an arty kid with this really heavy STEM household? Where, where, do, where were you exposed to it that you were able to say like, yes, like this is what I want to do? Well, I just, I mean, I make my, a lot of my artwork is about family and about yeah. how, just to kind of go back to the general themes that I work on um, for those that haven't seen the work, you know, it's, about familial networks, I say both chosen and, and not chosen. And so, you know, that's like my, my husband and in-laws and as well, obviously, as my parents. And the thing is, is I can just say that they were extremely supportive of, they always saw me drawing. And then, you know, my mom found the, this couple that was in the town that I grew up in that they, it's this, this couple that are both artists and they ran like a little art studio um, where people could sign up and my mom somehow found it in the newspaper and this was like before Google um, and I always think like how did they find this but it was like in the newspaper or something or the yellow pages and it was like you can you have to be eight years old to start like that was like their youngest age group and as soon as I was eight my mom like signed me up like you have to take and so anyway I've been very very well um, supported we'll just say that and yeah. and my dad is a tinkerer, I'll say. He has a, like a, we always had like a wood shop in our basement. And he's actually recently been making these beautiful cabinets for that. For the really? Anyway, so, so it's not, it's not an uncreative household, yeah. but um, it comes in different forms. We'll say that. I don't think my dad would agree with this, but I always say like engineers have to solve problems, but they have to like use real world physical 
things to solve those. Like they have to actually be able to make it exist in the real world. But artists are also just solving problems and they get to make up their own, like they get to make up their own problem to solve Mm. um, in their own way. And it doesn't necessarily have to hold the right weight for a car to pass over it or something. But like both cases, you're still looking at a problem and figuring out a creative solution to solve it. Well, and yeah, and I think like, you know, okay, yeah, it's not looking at can a car drive over this, but I feel like we do test our creations just in different ways. Oh, yeah. It's still, there's still, and and it varies from artist to artist, but most every artist I know has a framework that they put their Mm -hmm. creations through and see if it's ready to go live in the world. And I think that was actually, I'm like jumping way ahead, but that was actually one of the things, because I I didn't go to art school for undergrad. Mm. Um, I went to a liberal arts college because I wanted to study, I I wanted to have the option to study more things and I wasn't really ready to fully commit. And I think that to commit to being Mm. a Mm full-time artist or, or, or having art as my profession or whatever that meant. And I remember in my undergrad printmaking class, actually, which was a very pivotal class in my um, artistic development, but we went to this artist studio in Philadelphia because I went to um, undergrad also outside of Philadelphia. And she was doing this really, these really incredible paintings that were all based on this research that this woman had done a long time ago. But long story short, it was this, this man and this woman who were mapping the whole ocean. Mm based on, I think it was like before radar or before sonar or something. And they were using this like old school technology to map the whole ocean. And this artist made this whole series of work kind of inspired by that. And she went to the Library of Congress and like read these documents. And I just left and I was thinking like, no, artists are just doing research, but their output is a visual output instead of like a written output or a statistical output or a whatever. Absolutely. Well, I think that what people don't, really realize that that and maybe it's just a matter of they don't think about it in those terms you know you don't see an artistic output and immediately think this must have been researched some some people do people Mm -hmm. some people who are in the arts do and they understand that but the general population you know if they look at I don't know, a, a, a rocket ship or a new treatment to help like a fungus that's killing an endangered frog they think, oh, look at all the research that went into that. And it's it's just, right. I think more I, I'll see people calling it research, but for artistic output, but it's still something that people don't totally understand that, you know, if someone goes and lives with rural Thai farmers for six months and learns about their life and the way a new pesticide is like killing all of their chickens... And then goes mm-hmm. back to Bangkok and makes work about it. That was a research trip, you know? Yeah. That's, it was, it's gathering information and creating a finished product, which then communicates something and has a function in the world. Yeah, absolutely. That kind of realization is what helped me say, like, no, like, this is what I want to do. I'm, you know, that, like, that's how I want to communicate the things that I'm thinking about or researching or want to learn more about. And, and then anyway, to get back to the physical like manifestation of that, I mean, I started doing sculpture in the relatively recent past and man, it really is a challenge. Like you really mm. do have to figure out all of those like engineering aspects. 
Yeah, <laughs> so will like it stand up? You know? <laughs> yes, just the basics, totally. Yeah. And so, so it sounds like you were introduced to printmaking in this this pivotal undergraduate class, but you still weren't <laughs> sort of fully fully committing to the engagement. When did it become an integral part of your practice? Well, I think printmaking was an integral part of my practice from that first class. So I took uh, printmaking uh-huh. as, as a sophomore um, because of a scheduling conflict. <laughs> and as a professor now, I know that students are like students are really impressionable at that time. So you really have to anyway. <laughs> like I'm like, okay, you should be a printmaker, and they're like, yeah. I'm like, wait, is that what happened to me? Um, <laughs> no. But, <laughs> so I took printmaking and the first technique that we did, and I'm going to give a shout out to Daniel Heyman, who is still a really important mentor and friend, who is the person that was teaching this class. But the first technique that we learned in that class was Japanese woodblock printing, mokuhanga, like traditional style, because he had done the MeLab residency in Japan, which was a residency it still exists, I think, in a different iteration, but he did it in the original iteration where they invited international artists from all over the world, not just the United States, to come and study traditional mokuhanga with a workshop in Japan. And then he and many of the artists from that program then went back out to their respective countries and taught and continue to teach uh, mokuhanga to more and more, you know, more students. And I I just fell in love with woodblock carving and printing. And I think from the beginning, though, of course, I wouldn't necessarily be able to have been able to articulate it then. It's this like indirect way of making work. Right. And Mm -hmm. I think that the engineering exposure, we'll say, was part of that because it's like I love tools. I love like, okay, with printmaking, you need like this whole set of tools for each different technique. Um, And then you have to make this whole thing. And then use that thing to make the final thing. It's like so indirect. What was it about the indirectness that was created that appeal? I don't, that's what I'm saying. At the time, I don't know. And Mm. I guess maybe even now, I'm not sure. But it's like the magic happens in the in-between. Always in an artwork, you have your idea. And then you have to like bring that, as we were already saying, bring that idea into some kind of a physical form. And, you know, with painting... And I'm not going to knock on painting, but it's just, you know, it's easy. You know, um, <laughs> you, know you dab the thing, you, you know, you put paint on the brush, you put the, the brush on the substrate, and then the mark is there. And in printmaking, and I, I want to say especially in woodblock, but it's really all printmaking, there's like that translation, we'll say, that happens between the original idea and especially in my earlier work, in my current work, too, my, my, it's it's still part of it. But mark making is a huge part of my of my work, and so it's that the tools themselves are the things that are making the mark. I can't achieve some of the marks that I'm making in any other way except to use right. those tools. And so, and you know, before I, I mean, I guess like in my you know in my super youth. I would do a lot of like stipple drawings. Like I loved micron pens. I'd make these like little tiny stipple drawings and I would layer all these colors together. They'd just be in black and white. So like it was always there, but then I translated that into like stippling with a U gouge or like a V gouge. And then I started making these other types of marks in the wood. That wasn't immediately, but so it was like, I, I really just loved that process, like the physicality of carving and, the manipulation or like we did, you know, intaglio and like etching and just like the, the kind of magic that happens. 
at first I would say, you know, it was also sort of like that surprise, you know, mm-hmm. that surprise that comes. But at a certain point, you know, as you keep working in the medium, you can't really say that you're surprised. Like the, <laughs> you have control at a certain point. Right. You can do what you can make it do what you want to do. And there can be surprises, but then usually it's more of an accident at that point. Anyway, so I did a lot of single like black and white woodcuts. So that, it's less so in that case where the final product is just like a reverse of the other thing um, of the of the matrix. But when you're doing multi-block, it's like you can't see it. You know, like you can't see it until it's assembled all together at the end. You don't know exactly what it's going to look like until the end. Mm-hmm. And there's just something really exciting about that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that surprise and that journey of discovery and the amount at which you have to give up immediate control and really be a collaborator with the materials is something that I've heard a few people on the podcast talk to specifically about what really keeps them coming back to printmaking is that it's not just the, again, no shade to painting, but it's not just this like, (laughs) I, I see my paint, I see my brush, I see my canvas. And then they just layer up and at the end, either I made something that looks like I want it to or not, that directness, you know, has its place. And And I know some artists who thrive in that and they say, I could never do printmaking. I need that immediacy. Right. But, you know, I think that there's a certain personality, there's a certain artistic proclivity that draws people to almost like a more exploratory, slower process and I think that's what you're touching on when you're saying the 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 joy of printmaking in that in that sort of push and pull and and understanding all the different tools or if you're using etching all the different chemicals that that go into uh, or lithography everything that goes into creating that that finished piece that is not just you and the steadiness of your hand yeah you said something kind of early on that I'd love to hear you talk more about. And that's that idea that while you have a practice that involves many things, including sculpture, which I know just from looking at your website and looking at your portfolio, that that's a big part of what you do as well. But you consider all of it printmaking. And we just yeah. had uh, a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, the uh, Radical Printmakers Guild, and that came up as well. This idea that everything is printmaking, and they said, you know, paintings are just monotypes. You know, this idea that everything is actually printmaking, and I never really thought about it before, but now I've heard it twice, kind of in as many weeks almost. And so I'd love to hear you dive a bit into your philosophy on why everything is printmaking. Yeah, and I listened to that. Um, I listened to that episode as well, and I was excited to hear them say that because. I think my perspective is a little bit different, but like most things that you're like, I'm like looking around my room right now, most things that I'm looking at are mass produced, mm, right? Mm-hmm. Like most things are mass produced and a mass produced object of any kind has some kind of mold or matrix. And I, I guess I'll backtrack a little bit and say the other thing that I was studying as an undergrad was Chinese language and Asian studies focusing on like history art history and culture and then art studio art as well. And I'll skip ahead to grad school. I was sort of reinvestigating some of the things in Chinese art history that I had known about. And I came back to rubbings, which which is also um, intersects a little bit with my husband's research in, in Chinese art history. But 
you know, rubbings were really the, and actually even before rubbings, bronze casting, you know, Chinese bronze mm-hmm. casting, it's made from molds, you know, it's made from molds. And then they, in a little bit later, again, this is like 2000 BC. I thought I'm bad, really bad at dates, but it's like really a long time ago. And then later they would use stamps to impress on the mold. So they'd make designs in the clay, um, in the material for the molds, you know, using a stamp and, it's like all of that is a print. You have a matrix and then you use it to make a, an object. And then, you know, fast forward to rubbings, which are like a pre-print process, which is like, you know, you would put paper on the stone that was carved and you would put ink across the top of it as a way to disseminate the information that was on this stone, that the stone wasn't necessarily originally carved as a way to communicate, like it wasn't originally carved as a way to create a print. It, that wasn't its original function, but then later became this way of like collecting calligraphic examples and like disseminating decrees and all kinds of other things. And it's like, okay, so that's not a woodcut or an etching mm-hmm. or a, you know, like where does that fit? And so all of those things started to help me, ex- like thinking about print in that way started to help me expand my idea of what a print could be. And then I started looking around like, okay, well, anything that has a mold can be, would be a print because you can make a reproduction of it. Um, you have a thing that you can use to reproduce it. And, and so, yeah, basically to me, like everything that's not a handmade object is a print. And, and, and prints obviously are handmade objects that are also prints. Right. Um, and, then in my, and then in my own practice, so kind of expanding my idea of, that was like going on and then at the same time I was trying to make this work that the the tools I was using weren't enough you know this is like before I started making the sculptures I was trying to figure out I was trying to communicate this idea of like the family and like sort of the performativity of our personalities and how our interactions with other people play into that or affect it and I was trying to do that all with like two-dimensional work and it was, it was bad. I mean, it was like not working. So I was like, both, I both like had something that I needed to communicate that I, the tools I ha- currently had weren't quite enough. And then I was also like doing all of this thinking and reading about print that was helping me rethink what a print could be. And all of that came together. And I started making life casts, which became molds for sculptures. And then I more recently started 3D scanning faces and I've decided that every digital file is a matrix mm, because mm-hmm. because it can be print like, so so even just like a word document is a matrix that you can use to reproduce as many of that file as many of that document as you need to but I'm using it more with like 3D scanned files that I'm then CNC routing to use as molds for larger scale works in a similar vein mm. yeah no I I, I- Definitely see what you're saying about how, you know, when you break down, like, how we actually define what printmaking is, and then you take that framework and you start placing it on top of everything else we do, including, you know, digital files, you're like, oh, it's doing the same thing. It's absolutely doing the same thing. Um, And it's really, yeah, that's really fascinating. Yeah, because I guess, like, let's say before I thought of printmaking as 
a woodblock, an etching. You know, I, I thought of it in those terms. But then it was really thinking of it as a a matrix, a something that then can repro- that can be reproduced or can use itself to reproduce. That's when I that's really what changed it for me. And so you touched on this a little bit in what you were just saying, but it's something that I'm really curious about your work is this exploration of family, of the familial, of chosen families, of not chosen families, and how that relates to your work. And you just sort of skimmed the surface a bit, but I'd (laughs) love to understand what it is that you're exploring specifically in that, and then also why use portraiture as a vehicle to do that. Yeah, it's a good question. So maybe I'll start with the, the one end, which is portraiture is sort of like my go-to thing mm. in the sense of like, I, I've always been interested in faces, in humans, in connecting with humans, but also just like, I mean, before thinking about grad school or being an artist or anything, just like as a younger person, just really enjoying the act of drawing faces and not even necessarily like real people, you know, like it would just be like, I had my, like, I knew how to draw eyes properly and I knew how to draw noses properly. And I would just make, I would just in my notebooks at school or whatever, I would just draw faces. So I think that's the attraction to using portraits as part of the attraction of using portraits as that vehicle. It's just something that I've always been interested in drawing, but then at a certain point, and I've been reading a lot about like AI and um, facial recognition stuff. And that's mm-hmm. also kind of um, boggling, boggling my mind and sort of like messing with my mind about this. But um, at a certain point, and it's, it's always hard to know what comes first and what comes second, but I think I'll say it the way like that though, as much as I loved making straight portraits of individual people, I started to somewhere inside of me feel like it wasn't quite communicating enough. Not that, not that the portrait wasn't enough and not that I didn't love making it, but just like the idea that we can look at a person, a picture, an image of a person and know anything. There's like a false, I mean, and I think it's like a human, it's part of just like the human experience that we make judgments about faces and we have things that are connected to faces and that we like, we can weave a narrative about a person just by looking at their face without any other thing. And I had already, I had, I had at some point already realized like I didn't want to go the like sort of old school Renaissance route of like, I'm going to tell people more about this individual by placing all of these objects around them that indicate things about them. Like that wasn't what I was interested in doing. I really just wanted to show that individual person stripped away of anything else and just, them but again like it didn't it wasn't somehow it wasn't like quite sinking and so I did this whole series of incorporating like other imagery on the bodies and I was thinking of them as like dreamscapes and and that wasn't really doing it for me I mean it was cool but it wasn't it wasn't communicating the thing that I was trying to communicate either and then a lot of things happened at once which was like the same year that I got married we had a lot of deaths in like the family or like Mm. close close friends or like extended family. There was just like, it was just like a lot all at once. And then I'm like, our first nephew was born. And like, there was just all of this like life happening. And 
anyway, so it's, it's again, it's like hard to kind of pin down the exact sequence of how all this happened. But there was just like a lot of stuff like that bubbling. And then I was thinking a lot about like family and, and weddings, of course, make you, for me, myself, <laughs> for me, weddings brought up a lot of just like family stuff, not like, you know, just like reminiscences or like, remember this person's wedding or like that or the, and like photos. And so there was just like a lot of that out in the air. And so to wrap that whole thing up, somehow in all of that, I just started thinking about, you know, that it's not an individual, you know, like the portrait isn't of the individual. The individual is all of these other factors. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it is the biological, you know, like your parents and your siblings and, you know, your grandparents. But then at some point, you know, you're making a new step and there's like a new branch. And then that's like the chosen family. And like, what does that bring into that conversation? And how does that affect everything? And so I sort of have works that, and not that anyone would necessarily know this, but by looking at it, um, but there's like some works that focus more on like parent child relationships and others that focus on more like marital relationships, mm-hmm. but they're more about relationships, I guess, and how that is the, and what that means about the individual. Yeah. And so using sort of portraiture to explore that, you know, out of all the kind of different vehicles and ways that you can go about looking at relationships you know, you were saying that, like, you've just been kind of drawn to faces. Is there something more in that as well, though? Have you have you kind of decided that, you know, I don't know, I always think about, like, how we read so much on people's faces. And particularly when you were talking about, like, death and birth, you know, these huge moments in people's lives. Like, when you know someone, you can look at their face and you can know what they're going through, particularly in these big moments. And I didn't know if any of that kind of how the way in which the the humans in our lives and what they go through affects us more deeply than anything else. And we actually kind of read it on our bodies, really. I definitely I think that's part of it. But it's that's that's where it's a tough thing, because that's what I know about the work. And I don't always know if that's what the viewer can see about the work, if mm. that makes sense. Oh, totally, totally. So so it's like, that's how, like, those those are like the starting points for, like, some emotional experience or some familial experience or something might be the impetus for me to create a work in a certain way or, like, want to put things together or put these two people together or something like that in a certain way. But I don't know if that ends up just being more for me. Mm. Hmm. Well, I think that's a good question about art in general, when, you know, when an artist makes from a place of, I need this to be in the world, I need to express this thing. But then the object goes and it goes and it lives and it has a life of its own. And people might not on a conscious level, understand that exact place that the artist or the creator is coming from. But something I always believe is imbued in the work, like the the emotional energy comes through in some way that on the other side, when it's being received, there's actually something to that, I think. So yeah, they may not understand exactly what it is. Well, I hope so. Yeah, (laughs) I guess that is. Yeah, that's what we all hope. That's definitely what we all hope. Definitely. In terms of the actual subjects in your work, who are they? Are they friends? Are they relatives? Do you actually use real portraits of real family, chosen and unchosen? 
Yeah, I mean, yes, they're all they're all my poor family. Um, <laughs> so, so at, le- at least this current this current body of work with the the sculptures, the paper sculptures, and I have a few other like I have another body of work that's not necessarily about family, but yeah. So I currently have life casts for my parents, mm-hmm. my brother, my sister in law, my brother's wife. My mother-in-law, my husband, I'm trying to think. I think those are the only people that have agreed to let me. Oh, and I have I have a few friends, but I don't use them in this work as really. But those are the only people so far that in the in the family that have agreed to um, let me cast their face. It's a very intimate portrait. I didn't mention yeah. that, but it's like the most intimate portrait you can possibly make because you're like actually touching them. And I'll tell this funny story, which is the... I was in grad school. I was all excited about this, you know, moving into this life casting realm or like I had been using before I started life casting, I was using these like, like the salon mannequin type, like just really generic, really generic forms that had nothing to do with the people that I was talking about. They were just like alien looking. Mm -hmm. And so I had this idea that I wanted them to be more specific and I asked my parents, my parents were visiting me while I was in grad school, and I asked them if they would let me cast their faces. And I didn't know what I was doing, but I did. I tried not to tell them that. And my mom was like, toxicologist, meticulously reading all of the, you know, warnings on the, it's the um, body double uh, life casting, like um, body safe silicone. And I was like, yeah, 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 whatever, whatever, whatever. Uh-huh. And, um, <laughs> And, you know, so I slathered it all over her face and I got it like in her bangs. And there's two kinds of this body safe silicone. And it's safe. It's definitely safe on the skin. But there's one kind that releases the hair really easily from the mold. Like, so like your eyebrows and your hair. It it releases. But that's not what I had. And um, we had put like some Vaseline and stuff. But I like really got it in her bangs. And so we like did the whole thing. And I was like peeling back the mask, the mold. And it was completely like we had to cut some of the underside of her bangs. Oh. <laughs> it was it was awful. It was awful. And then the kind of gross part was like then after that I used I cast those molds in with plaster and mm-hmm. for like the the first like five or ten castings of like the hair would transfer and then and my dad my dad has like a full mustache and and also eyelashes and eyebrows and so the first ones and so he we we were better because he went second so yeah. we had a better oh um, thank goodness thank goodness like the like, guy with the mustache but, went second <laughs> slightly but it still definitely tore out some as much as there and it really like locks into the silicone so then like the first few plaster casts especially the first one the first plaster cast I made of my dad it's this bright white plaster but then it has like black mustache hairs you know like in the plaster and it has like little eyelashes and a little bit of eyebrows so it's like the creepiest death mask looking thing that oh there is gosh. because it's like a main a really big contrast between the the white plaster and the hair that is stuck in it so it's a really intimate portrait 
that's a, that's such like another yeah that's just like but in terms of like actually creating a portrait of someone that's so next level i know and so and again like these are the things like it's the, that's not i didn't know that like i wasn't thinking about that at the moment but then of course like also trying to get people to agree to do it i don't tell them that story but like a lot of people a lot of <laughs> not a lot but several of my you know like siblings in law and stuff like they don't want to do it or you know it's not anyway so it's an interesting, it's all a very interesting, it, yeah, it's really interesting. And then for the for the 3D scans, I've so far scanned my parents and my husband and myself. And I, I think that's all I have for the files. And only so far, only two of those files I've outputted to a slightly larger than life-size scale. Because at a certain point, if you're working from LifeCast, you're really stuck with the human stuck I mean that's what I want to be but like you're working with only with the human scale you know the actual physical scale of someone's face and so the scans really allow you to like expand the, the scale either smaller or bigger you know it's like you can move you just have more options yeah and no um bodily danger exactly. in, the, in the 3d scanning right. I would guess no touching no yes. touching you have to stay a certain feet away whatever <laughs> Do you think that that is, you know, I mean, I just, I'm just thinking about it in terms of you're just switching that level of intimacy so much though, you know, as opposed to that, like, cause I, I know that feeling of, of having like someone else put something on your face. Like the few times in my life I've had yeah. like a professional makeup job done for a wedding or something. Yeah. And, and, you know, it, and obviously in the case of your parents, like they're, that they, there's definitely always a physical closeness between like parents and children when they've you know when they've raised the child like them themselves that you know as a kid like you're so close physically to kids you know they 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 cuddle with right. you and they need baths and you have to give them haircuts and like so there is that just level of physical closeness with caring for a child and a parent so in terms of how that changes your process to switch that going from something so physically intimate, putting things on people's faces, touching faces, getting silicone cotton bangs, and 3D scanning where it's it's digital, there's a bit more removed, you're actually standing back. Has that affected how you see the actual practice? It's, a, it's an interesting question and I'm sort of, and I've been thinking about it because I am, well, in that indirect way, I, it's taken me longer to like get those molds in a place where I can actually use them. And I'm just, so I've had the scans for a while and it's anyway, I've been like beating around the bush of actually using them, but I have been thinking about it because the reason I wanted to do it was to shift scale, you know, because I because I also wanted to increase the scale of the woodblocks. You know, I like working with a slightly larger print and I'm using the prints to cast, I'm casting the prints in the molds and then combine them together. So if the molds are really small and the prints are really big, then the, it can be really cool, but it can also feel kind of limiting, but it is different. We'll just say it that way. And so like one of the, one of the obvious differences is that, and the thing that I just couldn't, it, it boggled my mind when I first made the life cast like I was peeling it away from my parents' face, the part that didn't stick. Mm -hmm. And, and I thought, I actually thought that the, like, I thought that I did it wrong because as I was peeling it away, there was all these like fine crevices. Mm. And I thought like, Oh, well, you know, I'll, I'll just deceive, like, I don't think it worked. And it turned out like, no, it was just that, that, that body safe silicone, that the silicone captures every detail 
of the skin, like every pore yeah. and every little crease and line and like the lines by your eye, like everything, it, it captures it in like hyper detail. I mean, I, I want to say hyper realistic, but it actually is just realistic, but it's, it's details that you don't, you don't get that close to someone's face and like get in there and see the physicality of their skin. And the 3D scans don't have any of that. You know, it's a lot more, I mean, they're still, they're still very realistic and it depends a lot on like the, the bits that you're, cause I'm CNC routing them. So I got this really fine bit that can do, you know, finer details, but it's not going to get, at least not the equipment that I have available to me is not going to get anything close to that level of detail um, of the skin. So it definitely, it's definitely different. One thing that I've been doing and I did this with the smaller scale versions and now I'm working on, and I, I, I started scaling it up. I started doing engravings of those skin details. So using the plaster mm-hmm. cast that I take mm-hmm. the life cast, I've been kind of like creating these patterns. I was calling them flay faces for a while, but that's not what I call them anymore. <laughs> um, but it's like, but it's literally like a sewing pattern where I kind of pull it's as if the skin were pulled from the face and flattened. And then it, and then when it's done, I, and then I engrave all of those details. And then when it's done, it folds back. Like if I were casting with it, it folds back into the mold and it fits that face, whichever face it is, whichever mold it is perfectly. And it brings those details back. But when I do it, when I use those engravings on the life casts that are like life size, it's kind of redundant because the casts have those details and then you put the engraving and it's like re-emphasizing those details. But so I've started using them to using the life cast to scale up those details to the size of whatever size the 3D scanned ones are, because it's something that's lost. And so then I, I've been kind of using the engravings to put back these details that I had in a previous format, but then lost in the trans- transition in the medium. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so... I would say, you know, something I'm always curious about when artists are fully kind of dedicating themselves to a subject matter like this, that it seems like a lot of your work and even the way you're thinking about your process is related to it, is why this? You know, why family out of all the things? Why is that something that you're feeling drawn to and dedicating your professional and artistic life to? What a question. <laughs> and now we can have a therapy session if you need. No, no, sorry. <laughs> I don't, I mean, well, I mean, I have other, I, I do have some other parallel things going on, but I think it's, it is that therapy session. I don't know. It's like, mm-hmm. it is just a path that I like started on. And let's say I haven't explored it to its end yet for me. Right. So who knows what's what's coming in the future, but especially because the tools and materials, you know, to go back to the original thing about printmaking, I keep adding those. So like once I have a set of people that I'm working with, I have to make like a full set of woodcuts of them to to use. I'm basically making a bunch of additions of things and then using them as my casting material to then make another thing. And so it's like, it's sort of Sisyphean because like I said, okay, so I want to expand the scale of the molds. Well, then everything has to get scaled up to that level. So I can just kind of keep redoing it and it's never, 
I can keep working with the same subject matter and doing it in a different way and keep using it in a new way. And it's like not, I haven't exhausted it yet for myself, but I also just think like kind of going back to, to me, like what is a portrait and how can you communicate something about an individual? And I feel like you need, you need that whole context. You need the whole community and it doesn't, the community is beyond just family, but I feel like they're such a fundamental thing that's shaping shaping the person and and it's in ways that you can't even understand the work is also about relationships and i think it's also about that like can you ever know a person like we're, we're always trying to communicate with people we, we think we know somebody in our life like our parents or the parents know the child or like you spend all this time with somebody and you think that you know them but then there's like there can be that gap of like wait, do I or what or, and so anyway, I just think it's about family, but it's also about human to human connection and about relationships between people. And I just like haven't exhausted all the possibilities yet yeah. before I'm whatever comes next. So I mentioned at the intro just kind of briefly that we were brought together through Print Austin. Um, and I was introduced to your work because you were selected for uh, an exhibition curated by Delita Martin. And I'm hoping maybe you can talk a little bit about that, the uh, nature of the exhibition and how you found out about it and the piece that was selected for it. Yeah, so I am very excited to be on this podcast. And I'm also very excited that Print Austin um, brought us together and that Delita Martin chose my work out of all of the work I, I sometimes submit to juried exhibitions just because it makes it, I know that that means that the person that's the juror has to look at whatever I submit uh-huh. and whatever happens after that, then great. But otherwise I know that they had to look at it anyway. And I'm, I, so I'm so excited that the work was chosen and the exhibition is virtual because of the life we live right now. Yeah. And which I'm actually really excited about because I think that, you know, hopefully it will reach a wider audience than even if it were in person. But the exhibition is the contemporary print five by five. They chose five artists and each artist will have five works featured. And all of the works that I will have featured are these paper sculptures and the paper sculptures, they include all the people that I talked about. So some of my siblings-in-law, my mother-in-law, my parents, my husband, me, and some of them are freestanding. Um, it's fully in the round sculptures. Some of them are wall hanging pieces, but they all feature images, you know, representations of people in a more traditional portrait, along with some of these other things that are less traditional prints or less traditional portraits. So the life cast, handmade paper, which I consider a print because you can pull the same sheet of handmade paper over and over and over again with the same mold and decal. Mm-hmm. So handmade paper, life cast, the engravings that I was talking about, they're also um, in some of them as well as some dry points. And they're all, they're all different explorations of, of kind of human connections and familial connections that well, I don't know. I would love your feedback, everyone. If you yeah. let me know what you think. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Does it do what I'm saying? Yeah, totally. And it's wonderful, yeah, to be able to, to have you on and to get some more, more contacts for it in, in a long format. 
So when will people be able to see this exhibition and, and where? So the exhibition will be on bigmedium.org, which is a really interesting um, platform to check out. Uh, I've been exploring it a lot more and there will be artist features on that website as well. And then the dates of the exhibition are January 15th to February 19th, 2021. Beautiful. Well, I'll definitely put a link in the show notes to that. And then also, where can people just find you and your work more generally? Yeah, so my website is lrpstudio.com. So that's a good place to see a lot of a lot of work. And then I'm also on Instagram at Laura R. Post. Good. Excellent. Well, I'll put links to all of that in the show notes. And just want to thank you for spending your bit of your evening with me. And it was great to talk about 3D printing and family and all of it. And I'm really excited to see your work in the exhibition. And uh, it's been a real pleasure, Laura. Yes, Miranda. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Thanks. I will be in touch. Well, that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Emmy Linkscheid. We'll talk about the workshop and conference circuit, the magical history of lithostones, and the lives of the things around us. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week. 